You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome back to the fifth lecture in this series of lectures on ethics in the 20th century. In today's lecture, we're going to reach a discussion of a kind of tipping point, as I might put it, in the history of 20th century ethics. Up until now, I've been reviewing the development of views, beginning with the intuitionists in the early part of the century, the criticism of their views by the non-cognitivists like uh, A.J. Ayer and Charles Stevenson, and then in my last lecture looking at the criticism of the non-cognitivist by two of their critics in the 1940s and 1950s and 1960s, Philip Foote and John Searle. I had hoped in the last lecture to talk about a third critic, Elizabeth Anscombe, but because of time constraints I'm going to have to move a discussion of her views until uh, the eighth lecture, but we'll be talking about her soon. This development of views from more through people like Foote and Searle represents a kind of single conversation about those issues that I characterized in the first lecture as issues in classical metaethics. Discussions of issues basically about what moral judgments mean, how they can be justified, how they relate to the world. By the 1950s, and especially in the 1960s, that discussion, I want to suggest to you, it reached a kind of impasse. And in a remarkable turnaround, moral philosophy in the academic world simply drops those questions in certain respects and takes off in a more traditional and classical direction. I want to talk about today that moment when this shift in conversation occurs, and then we will continue in, in the lectures from today with this new emphasis on what we'll call the revival of classical normative theory. Now, I want to do this today, in today's lecture, by talking about just two slides, and they will involve two different diagrams, a diagram that I hope will illustrate more generally than I've been able to do so far what the issues were in the first half of the 20th century in ethics, and then the second illustrating what's to come. Well, so let's begin with a diagram which I will suggest to you captures the heart of this debate that we've been talking about up until this time in these lectures, the meta-ethical debate of the first half of the 20th century. This debate, I think, goes on against the background of a very simple diagram. It's a diagram that begins with sort of the world, or the facts, as we might call them, and raises questions about the relationship between facts about the world and moral judgments, and then in turn raises questions about how moral judgments relate to uh, action. It seems to me classically, and not just in the 20th century, the central problems at the most theoretical level in ethics have been problems about how it is that our moral assertions, our moral claims about what's good and bad, about what's right and wrong, about what's courageous or just or fair. The classical problems at the most abstract level have been problems about how these judgments are anchored in the world in one way or another, and how these judgments in turn move us to act. The questions 
classically can be put as how can we justify these moral claims? And secondly, why do these moral claims give me reason to act at all? And we might call these problems first the problem of justification in ethics. How can we justify moral judgments? And the history of moral philosophy is filled with different accounts of how we justify moral judgments. We justify them, you recall in the first lecture we talked about the varieties of objectivism in ethics, which are all varieties of attempts to explain how we justify moral judgments. We might justify them by appealing to the will of God, by the facts of human nature, by commitments we've made in contracts with other people. There might be all kinds of devices. And the history of moral philosophy is a complicated argument in the first place about how we justify moral judgments or in some cases, people have argued that we can't justify them at all, as we saw in the case of the non-cognitivists for whom moral judgments aren't true or false. They don't make claims about the world. They can't be more or less adequate to the world, hence they can't be justified at all. Now, the other problem that has to do with the relationship between moral judgments and action, we might call the problem of motivation. This problem, I think, isn't as salient to most uh, people who think about ethics, at, at least at first glance, but it too is at the heart of classical discussions in ethics. How is it that the fact that I ought to do something, or it would be good for me to do something, how is it that that recognition of that fact, if it is a fact, moves me to act, gives me a reason to act? Classically, this question might be put this way. Why should I be moral? Why should I do what, in some cases, I may know that I ought to do? So the problem of motivation is the problem about how moral judgments relate to action, how they move us to do anything at all. And again, moral philosophy, it, the history of the subject, is filled with different accounts of how we might deal with this problem. We should do what morality requires of us because maybe it will make us happy, because it will get us to heaven, because it fits with the kinds of creatures that uh, we are, because if we don't do it, we'll be, we'll be punished, because if we don't do it, we'll disappoint those whom we love or to whom we're committed in various, uh, uh, various ways. Indeed, at the most abstract level, one can see that the whole of the history of moral philosophy is a debate about these two questions. How are our moral and ethical claims anchored in the world, however we understand that, and how in turn do they give us reasons to act and move us and make us move? Because the important thing about ethics and what makes it so difficult to understand and makes it so difficult to articulate its sort of inner essence, as it were, is the fact that it has a foot both in the world, moral judgments claim to tell us the truth about things. On the other hand, that has a world in practice, a foot in practice, moral judgments move us to do certain sorts of things. Now, if I'm right about this, that the problem of justification and the problem of motivation are the two central, most abstract problems in ethics, then we can see how these discussions in the early part of the 20th century might have brought us to an impasse. Consider for a moment what I'll call the naturalists. And I mean by the naturalists, this is a funny use of the term, but it's the way we talk in moral philosophy. Those people like Philippa Foote and John Searle I was talking about last time, who think that, as we put it, Foote thinks, 
that there's a logical limit to what we can take to be good. She wants to suggest that there is a kind of logical connection between the world and moral judgment. That is, is in some cases can tell us what we ought to do. And the, and the, the title of Searle's art, famous article is How to Derive an Is from, uh, How to Derive an Ought from an Is. Now, both Foote and Searle and other critics of non-cognitivism held then that there was a logical connection between the world and moral judgments. But with regard to moral judgments and action, they at least don't go very far in telling us exactly how these facts about the world might move us, might move us to act. So naturalists, at least without a lot of other explanations, may hook facts to moral judgments. Moral judgments just report on things about the world, but then we want to know how do these reports move us to action. The problem of motivation is left over. Consider Moore and the other intuitionists. They actually make a mess of the whole thing. Moore of course, has to live in a world in which we think that there might be some relationship here, but since moral judgments for more are connected to these simple non-natural facts, or simple non-natural properties, more is unable to establish any clear connection between facts about the world and moral judgments. There are these peculiar things, nor, and we saw this was one of the main objections to intuitionism, can he explain how moral judgments move us to act. Now, the emotivists and the non-cognitivists might seem to be better off. They certainly can explain to us how moral judgments move us to act, if moral judgments are just the expression of attitudes and desires. But of course, for emotivists, since moral judgments don't have truth values, they can't be justified, they don't express knowledge claims, they have no connection to the world at all. So the views on offer in 20th century metaethics are all presented against the background, I would suggest to you, of these two problems. And in one way or another, they all are inadequate. Naturalism is very good at showing, I think, what's wrong with emotivism. Emotivism is very good at showing what's wrong with intuitionism. Intuitionism is very good at sort of expressing itself, but in, I think most of us think, a pretty implausible way, but no one of these views seems very satisfying in giving us a full and rich account both of how the moral is anchored in facts about the world, the way we are, the way our desires are, the way our faculty of reason are, the faculty of reason might be. They don't do a good job of explaining that and how moral judgments move us to action simultaneously. Now, that's not the only reason why this discussion just comes to an end. Partly people just got bored with it. And I hope you haven't found my account of these issues too boring in the last, last few lectures, but, but I'll forgive you if you have. This is tedious material focused narrowly on very technical questions in semantics. And this discussion, when I say it's been dropped, I don't want to suggest it's not still going on in universities around the world. It is still going. On, but it's, not, it's no longer at the heart of the debates in ethics. Something happens in the 1960s and 1970s, and academic moral philosophers return to a more classical discussion. And I can put it in terms of this diagram before I move to the other one, quite simply by saying what happens is that moral philosophers quit focusing so much on these abstract problems of justification 
and motivation, and they begin to focus more on the nature of the moral itself. How are we to understand this whole dimension of our life that's connected to ethics and morality? And in reconceiving their questions in this way, what they actually do is return to, I think, some classical discussions in moral philosophy, more like those of Sidgwick and Kant, which were going on in the 19th century, and of course, even more like those of Aristotle and Plato in the ancient world, the kinds of conversations that I said broke down at the end of the 19th century under the pressure of criticism from people like Nietzsche and Sidgwick and opened the door for G.E. Moore and this kind of tool sharpening discussion of these technical issues. Okay, so much for the diagram explaining classical metaethics. What's coming next? Well, what comes next is, as I said, a return to what I think are classical discussions about normative theory. If you look at this diagram for just a moment, what this diagram suggests, what I think are the main structural features of any human action. And to understand classical normative theory, remember normative theory now is the kind of ethics that's going to focus not on these technical and most abstract questions of justification, but rather on questions about what's the content of an adequate moral view of the world. Ethics, whatever else it's going to be, is going to be concerned with human action. We've said over and over again that it's not a merely theoretical discipline. Ethics is concerned with what we should do. And if it isn't concerned with that, it sort of loses all contact with what makes us interested in ethics. It's not surprising then if we want to look at the variety of views on offer about the nature of the ethical, that these views should fall out in relationship to the basic structure of human action. Now when I say this diagram depicts the basic structure of human action, I mean that it picks out what seems to me to be the three essential features in anything, any action that a human being performs. First of all, there will be an agent, that is somebody who performs the action. Secondly, there will be the thing done, the action itself. And finally, there will be the consequences of that action. Now sometimes it's difficult to understand uh, or to distinguish between exactly what someone does and what the consequence of that action might be. And philosophers, of course, are experts at talking about tedious and difficult questions like this. If I shoot somebody with the intent to kill them, is the death of that person connected? Is that part of my action or is it one of the consequences? It's, it's murder, after all, which involves death. These are interesting questions for philosophers. We needn't pause over them. Here, let's begin with the thought that we understand the relationship between persons who do things and those things have consequences. You see your aunt's new hat, you perform the action of making a, a joke about it with the consequence that she leaves you out of her will and is made unhappy for weeks on end. These kinds of distinctions are the meat and potatoes of everyday life. Now, the structure of human action is related to normative theory in the following way. If you try to think in the most general way about what ethics is about, you might think that it's about this question. What's most important for me to do to lead a successful life in the most general sense of that question? What is it? Sometimes it's suggested that to get a grip on this question, we imagine 
what kind of obituary we would like to have written about us at the end of our life. What would we like people to say about us such that our life, in the most general sense of the term life, is a success? In the history of moral philosophy, and I mean the history now stretching back to the discussions of these questions in ancient Greece when moral philosophy actually begins in the West, there have been three big, broadly different answers given to this question. Some people have said that at the end what makes a life successful is that the life itself is of a certain sort. The agent himself or herself has a certain kind of character. Here the picture of a successful life is almost the picture of a sort of beautiful art object. We think of our lives as sort of creating something, but what we're creating in this case is our own life. And we're not concerned with beauty, we're concerned with goodness. Now that's one conception. To be successful is to lead a successful life. Here's a second conception though. Somebody might say no, what's most important is that my life be such that I do the right things. You can think of one's life as a kind of series of actions and each one gets graded or each one is of high quality or low quality. And to lead a successful life is to have a life where with each action it's okay. We can imagine someone sort of ticking off. You do certain things, you give so much to charity, you express loyalty to certain causes, you keep a promise, you tithe to your church and somebody says, yep, that's the right thing to do. Finally, one, someone who might say, no, no, a successful human life is not one where you become a good person or you do all the right things, perform all the right actions. It's one where you produce good stuff. What's important in your life is what you leave behind, the consequences that your life creates. You might have been a skunk as a human being. The particular actions you might have performed might have been in various ways disgusting or wrong. But the crucial thing about your life is did you produce lots of good stuff? Now these three reactions to the question what makes a human life successful point us in the direction of the three different classical normative theories against the background of which we do ethics today. If one thinks in the, in the ancient world the ancient Greeks suggested that the answer to this question points us in the direction of Aristotle and Plato, especially of a theory which makes the heart of ethics the question of which virtues we should have. If a successful life requires us to become a person of a certain sort primarily, then what's required is that we have the properties that such persons should have, and here the appropriate properties are virtues. In the ancient world, virtually all of ethics, done by Aristotle, done by Plato, done by the Stoics, the Epicureans, the great schools of philosophy in the ancient world, focused on this question. What are the virtues that a human being needs to have? Where virtues are these rich properties that make us what we are, and why are they virtues? Virtually all of the discussion in the ancient world about ethics was focused on the cardinal virtues, justice, temperance, courage, and wisdom. With the advent of Christianity some centuries later, we get added the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, and ethics is about these virtues. And there were arguments. Is justice an important virtue? Why is it a virtue? 
Should we regard cleanliness as a virtue? We know Benjamin Franklin did. I think Aristotle wouldn't have regarded it as a virtue. If one rejects this view, though, and suggests that the correct account of a successful human life in its most general terms is a life lived in accordance with rules, one might think that the paradigm for ethics now is not a list of uh, cardinal virtues or theological virtues, but some list of rules. Think about the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. Here we have a conception of how one should guide one's life that involves ten rules. Living one's life successfully is a matter of bringing it up to a certain standard. This view is expressed most uh, persuasively and powerfully in the modern world by the German philosopher Immanuel Kant. But lots of other people have held similar views. In philosophical terminology, we call this a deontological view, a view which focuses on rules and what we ought to do. Finally, one might hold this third view that what's most important in a successful human life is what we bring about, what we, as it were, bring into the world as a consequence of what we do. And this view is connected with such 19th century utilitarians as Bentham and Mill. Now, these three views, let's call this a virtue theory, a deontological or rule theory, utilitarianism, or as we'll call it, for reasons I'll explain in uh, the next couple of lectures, a consequentialist theory, these three theories represent, in the history of moral philosophy, the main three options for thinking about what the moral life is all about. And the best way to think, at a certain level of abstraction, about the history of moral philosophy is as an ongoing debate, beginning with Socrates and his fellows and continuing up to this very moment, about which of these conceptions of the moral life is the most adequate one? One that suggests that ethics focuses around the cardinal virtues, which sort of tell us what to do, or that focuses around some big principle, and we'll talk about Kant's version of the categorical imperative, the famous principle that Kant suggested should tell us which rules we should follow, or the principle of utility, which we'll be talking about in the seventh lecture, which tells us which consequences we should bring about. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood in talking about the differences among these theories. It's not the case that Aristotle and Plato and the ancient world spoke only about virtues and never talked about rules or consequences, or that Kant spoke only about rules and never talked about virtues or consequences. Everybody in ethics has to talk about these three features of human life. Everybody's life has to have a structure. It has to have, you have to be somebody. You have to have dispositions and properties. We all, if we're human beings and act the way we do, we have to act in accord with norms and rules. And finally, we all have to take into account the fact that our actions have consequences, and everybody has to talk about these things. The differences have to do with the fact that these different theories and normative theories and approaches to ethics make one or another of these notions most fundamental. For virtue theorists, the virtues that you have, your character is in some important sense, and, and this has to be specified carefully, and I'm not going to do that now, fundamental in your moral life. Rules 
the correct rules will be subordinated to questions about the kind of person you are. You should follow certain rules because only by following those rules can you succeed in this way. The consequences you are allowed to bring about in the world are the consequences that you're allowed to bring about as a person of a certain sort. In the same way, rule theorists like Kant are going to be interested in virtues, but the virtues they're going to be interested in are the virtues that make you follow rules. For Kantians, to be the most important virtue is something like conscientiousness, because what's most fundamental is that you do what you ought to do, okay, and you should be the sort of person that does what he or she ought to do. And similarly, consequentialists will subordinate considerations of virtues and, uh, and rules. Finally, this may seem, and I know it does, very esoteric and distant from the ordinary issues of ethics. But this isn't just a philosophical dispute, and, and I want to drive this point uh, home. It's, just not, it's not just that Aristotle, Kant, and Bentham disagree about these questions. As modern men and women, all of us have, in, have inherited sort of a, a culture in which the ancient, the thought of the ancient Greeks and their emphasis on virtue, the thought of such uh, 18th century Enlightenment figures as Immanuel Kant and 19th century figures like Bentham are part of the background for our life. In our way, as we look out at the world in a practical sense and try to decide how to act and how to behave, we have in our own minds the sort of cardinal virtues as sort of virtue type thoughts. We have rule type thoughts. We have consequentialist type thoughts. If I've explained these views at all adequately, you should all recognize in your own practical thinking strands that are drawn from each of these traditions. And that's one of the reasons why it makes it so difficult to be a modern man or a modern woman. We don't live just in Aristotle's Athens or in Kant's uh, Prussia or in John Stuart Mill's 19th century London. We live in a world in which all of these cultural and moral traditions mix in our own lives and in our own personalities. In the next three lectures, I'm going to look at how in the early 1970s, moral philosophers turned their attention away from these meta-ethical issues, that first diagram, and turned their attention in the direction of these classical problems. And what we will find in the last 30 years of the 20th century is that moral philosophers returned to the task of appropriating virtue approaches to ethics for our time, Kantian-style deontological ethics for our time, and finally, new and souped up versions of consequentialism. I look forward to you joining me for my next lecture when we will talk specifically about the beginning of the revival of deontology. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.